0: Howdy folks and welcome to the Texas A&M RUF podcast. RUF stands for Reformed University Fellowship and what we are is a campus ministry for the convinced and unconvinced believers and non-believers. We put a lot of emphasis on being community and people oriented and promoting a welcoming atmosphere of inclusivity and comfort. What this podcast is, is a collection of our large group sermons given by our campus minister, Austin McCann. Now, without further ado, We really hope that you enjoy this talk.
1: Hello. So everybody, uh, so turn your Bibles to John 19, verses 16 through... 16 through 30. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the Place of the Skull, which in Aramaic is called uh, Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with two others, on, one, on, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription on, uh, and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write, the King of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus, were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold, your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I feel about our heads. Um, Dear Lord, I want to thank you, Lord, for uh, this wonderful day and allowing us all to be here at RUF tonight to fellowship and worship more uh, and learn more about you. Uh, Lord, I just want to pray for Austin, that he can um, give us a good sermon and uh, that we can learn more about you and that we can open up our hearts to you, Lord. Um, I want to pray for anyone that's struggling here tonight, um, that they can turn to you, Lord, and um, just be grateful for you. And Lord, in your wonderful name we pray. Amen.
2: Well, um, good evening. Welcome to RUF. Uh, My name is Austin McCann. I'm the RUF campus minister here. We're so glad you're here. If this is your first time to RUF, RUF, uh, a special welcome to you. I have my phone on me because... My wife is pregnant, and we are expecting any time now, uh, probably towards the end of November. So, But at any point now, she could go into labor. So she's not here yet. She's supposed to be coming, so I have my phone on me just in case. Um, and so, look, I, I want to draw attention real quick. Uh, Twins, Twin Lakes Camp uh, from Jackson, Mississippi is with us. Zay is in the back. Zay, would you stand up real quick? Everybody, that's Zay. Uh, thank you for being here, Zay. Look, if you uh, are interested in doing a camp or being a counselor this summer, please come talk to Zay after this. Twin Lakes is a Christian camp. And if you want more information about that, we always print out these bulletins every week. So if you pick those up at the front, they're always at the table. And on the back, we include included a QR code. So if you wanna learn a little bit more about Twin Lakes, please scan the QR code, um, and it is, is on the back. So Zay, thanks for being here. Um, really, uh, what I wanna say is this. I miss you guys a lot. Uh, We had two guest speakers this past week, and I just miss seeing the front of your faces, just your faces, not the back of your head. So um, it's it's a joy to be back with you guys. There's really no other place I'd rather be on Wednesday night. Um, And really, this is what we say at RUF. We believe that you're never so good that you stand outside the need of God's grace, while at the same time, you are never so bad that you stand outside the reach of God's grace. We really believe that. And tonight we're going to get a taste of that. We're going to see it. Um, Because if you've been with us, we've been looking this whole semester right, throughout the Gospel of John and examining John's claim that everything in John's Gospel was recorded so that you would believe on Jesus and have life in his name. And tonight we get to the climax of the book. Oh, my wife is here. Okay, we're all good. Um, Tonight we get to the climax of the book. We're at the point tonight in Jesus' life that he has continually been talking about. Okay, all the way back from chapter 2 and on, Jesus keeps talking about his hour. His hour. He's headed to his hour. And tonight his hour has come. The death of Jesus Christ. And this is it. Which means that it's not an overstatement to say that all of world history hinges on this moment 2,000 years ago. And so tonight, as a way of introduction, I really have to thank Brian Habig for this. Uh, this is really his illustration. He pointed me to a uh, Washington Times post an experiment that was done back in 2007. And I don't know if you've ever heard uh, of a man named Joshua Bell, but Joshua Bell is noted as one of the top violinists in the world. Uh, He's a prodigy, and wherever he goes, people pay hundreds of dollars to hear him in concert. And the Washington Times actually set up this this experiment uh, in a subway in Washington, D.C., and they called it the Pearls Before Breakfast. And the reason they did that is because at 8 a.m. in the morning, in one of the busiest subway stations in Washington, D.C., there are people bustling about, uh, getting on and off the subway, and Joshua Bell comes walking in. And he is dressed in a baseball hat, and a regular pair of jeans, and a long sleeve t shirt. And he opens his violin case, and puts a couple dollars into the case, and he takes out literally his $3.5 million violin and he starts playing. And he starts playing a piece that some say only a few individuals in the whole world can actually play to perfection. And there he is in the middle of the subway, the greatest violinist in the world, and no one stops to listen. And there's actually people there who are, do, who are actually doing the experiment, and they're counting people as they're watching this experiment unfold. He said 63 people pass uh, before anyone even notices or has any kind of interest in in Joshua. And finally, after about five minutes of playing, a woman stops and throws a dollar in his case and continues to scoot by. And in the end, in his 20 minutes of playing, over 1,000 people passed without even noticing him, and a grand total of $32 was put into his case. See, he he gathers never more than a group of four to listen to arguably the best violinists that the world has ever seen. And tonight my prayer is that you don't miss it. But we're, going to, we're going to see a Jewish man, bloodied and beaten, nailed to a cross, and if we're not careful tonight, then we're going to miss it. Miss the significance of who this man really is, the God man, the King of glory himself, and what he has come to do in redeeming sinners by absorbing the hellish pain of wrath, the wrath of God on our behalf, by defeating death, so that we could actually have everlasting life in Him, Jesus, life itself. His hour of death has come. So there's two points tonight that I want us to listen, that I want us to pay attention to. Okay. And a big thanks to Brian Haybig, Tim Keller, uh, they were very giants of the faith who've gone before me in this passage. Two points tonight. Okay. What was done to Jesus, and what was said by Jesus? What was done to Jesus, and what was said by Jesus? Okay, so first, what was done to Jesus in verses 16 through 24. But uh, really quick context here, because this is important, because in, back in chapter 18, Jesus was betrayed by his disciple, Judas Iscariot, and arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he goes on trial before the high priests and all the chief priests and the Pharisees. And there he is mocked and beaten, and many bear false witness against him. And when asked if he's the Messiah, the Son of God, he simply replies, I am. So the chief priests, from that moment on, condemn him for blasphemy, and are now determined to put him to death. But because the Roman Empire occupied Jerusalem during this time, the Pharisees didn't have the authority to actually impose capital punishment upon Jesus. So they bring him before this man named Pilate, who was the who was appointed the governor of Judea at the time, uh, to get his approval for Jesus's death sentence. And so finally, Pilate eventually, after. Reluctant, And after back and forth with the Jewish leaders, he hands Jesus over to be crucified, where a passage picks up in verse 16. And the writer of John centers his focus on two particular things in this account of Jesus' crucifixion that is done to him. The ironic mockery and Jesus' divided garments. So first, the ironic mockery in verses 17 through 22. So Jesus is condemned to execution by Pilate, and he's asked to carry his own cross. Um, which is bearing the weight, the public mockery, as he would have walked the path to his own execution. And then in verse 18, it tells us that he was crucified, and he's crucified with two other people. He's actually numbered with sinners. And then John adds an important detail that Pilate wrote in, in an inscription above Jesus' head on the cross. And this was a common practice that they did in the Roman era, is where they would they would hang criminals on a cross, and they would always put above their heads the crime that they had committed. And so it was an act of, of shame and casting on shame and it was a deterrent. And Pilate writes this writes this inscription in three languages for the whole watching world at the time to see. And so I was actually excited to do this because I don't get talked about this much. But right, it's worth noting geography here, okay? Geography matters. Right? The piece of land where Jerusalem sits is known as the land of Palestine. Okay, so throughout all of history. This area has been a bridge of nations because of the major road system that connects modern-day Syria to the north, Egypt to the south, Jordan, and, uh, and Iraq to the east. Okay. It was a high-traffic area. And this is why the Roman Empire occupied this area, because whoever ruled the land of Palestine controlled the major trade routes in this traveling system. And so people from all over the world, all over the nations, would be traveling through Palestine that spoke different languages. Aramaic. Okay, Latin and Greek. And there's no doubt that they would be passing by Jerusalem and see criminals hanging on a cross. So Pilate writes in Aramaic and Latin and Greek, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, in a cruel last stamp of mockery, you see bloody beaten, weak and dying, Jesus hanging on the cross, and the mocking sign saying, here is your king. Well, was Pilate right? in an ironic way, what Pilate meant for mockery was actually pushing forth and proclaiming the truth of God. And this is amazing. Because we can hear the echoes in chapter 12 of John when Jesus tells the crowd, and, when, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. You see, here's the beautiful irony. As you read this chapter, right, you can hardly get through it without feeling the heaviness and the darkness. The pain of an innocent man, a man who's done nothing but heal people and feed people and raise people from the dead and care for the poor and teach the good news of the gospel. This man is nailed to the cross. And it's evil, the greatest evil that the world's ever seen, the killing of the God man. Yet did you see how many times John wants you to know that all of this was to fulfill the scripture? He says it twice here, and one more time at the end of chapter 19. You see, Jesus' crucifixion, it, was, it wasn't an accident. And it it's neither is it out of control. And there's almost a sense that the Jewish leaders know this, right? because they asked Pilate, change the name on the sign in verse 21. You have an awful evil, and yet there is a true king, a true master of ceremonies, the true choir director, who is the one that's actually really running the show? Those crucifying, they were, yes, they are responsible for their actions. But every bit of evil is simply writing the events that God has already ordained to happen. They are unknowingly doing the very thing that will draw all people to Jesus for life. They are proclaiming the kingship of Jesus for the watching world to see, and they don't even know it. You see, this is a loving God who is in complete control. And He's going to bring salvation to the world by ordaining the greatest evil on His own Son, Jesus. Why? Because at the greatest point of evil, God is weaving together His story to bring about the greatest good the world has ever seen through Christ's death and accomplishing eternal life. And I just want you to consider for a moment. like, Could this not be true in your own life? Like, how many of you, honestly, if you have trusted in Christ, like, how many of you, though, like, when real tragedy, when real hardship comes into your life, like, ever feel that way? Like, why is all this happening to me? Like, you ever feel like the world is just a weight on your shoulders? You think, where is God in this? Why is he absent? Um,. Well, if you watched or remember the 2016 Summer Olympics, it was held in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Um, some of you may you may have been there before. Uh, if you remember, or, or if you've been there, seen pictures. Stands high on the, on this mountain, overlooking all of Rio de Janeiro, is Christ the Redeemer statue. You've probably seen pictures of it overlooking uh, Rio, and it's this beautiful, majestic, and deemed one of the seven wonders of the world. But what's ironic? is that this statue portraying Jesus that people from all over the world come to see is overlooking the slums of one of the poorest communities in all of Brazil and even in the world. And one can only imagine that those people waking up every morning who have nothing, who wake up every day in the slums, like what they are thinking is they look up and they see the statue of Jesus who's distant, who's removed, who's irrelevant, who's uncaring. Asking themselves, like, Jesus, like, where are you? And if we were to be honest, many of us picture Jesus like this in our life. That he's just kind of up there. He's just kind of removed and distant, doesn't really care. That there's no way that he really understands my struggle. There's no way that there is a God that can really love me. See, but this statue communicates a distorted understanding of who Jesus is. Because since the beginning of our series in John, what we have seen is that Jesus, who is life itself, became one of us. Instead of leaving us in despair, he left the glories of heaven. He came down the mountain, and he entered into the slums of the sin and the suffering of our lives. Why? Because our greatest need was not merely personal happiness. Our greatest need is not temporary healing. Our greatest need is not to graduate college and get that Aggie ring. Or to finally be married. Or to finally get into that student orb that will just make me a somebody. Our greatest need is for someone to atone for the sins that I could never atone for for myself. Someone to pay the debt of sin that we could never pay ourselves. We need a substitute to atone for our sins. And this is what is happening on the cross. Jesus is the perfect sacrificial king. He's the sacrificial king that atones for our sins by dying the death that we deserved, Removing our guilt. Absorbing God's wrath so that we could receive His perfect righteousness and everlasting life. That's the good news of the gospel. This is why RUF We preach Christ crucified. Because it's the greatest. It's the greatest irony in all of history. This dramatic reversal. Consider this. God uses an instrument of death. The cross. To defeat death itself. By Christ's sacrificial life. Hang with me. The death of death. And the death of Christ. Leads to eternal life. The death of death. And the death of Christ leads to eternal life life comes through the cross death mocked no one that day but itself so now Christians we can sing with Paul in first Corinthians 15 we're the ones that we get to do the mocking we're the ones that we get to, that get to declare oh death where is your sting oh death where is your victory that's our mocking cry now And very quickly, we also see not only the ironic mockery, but very quickly we also see that they divide Jesus's garments in verses 23 and 24. And let me show you why that's significant. Right, this is not something unique that they did to Jesus alone. Okay, it was a commonplace that when a criminal was executed like this, when a criminal was crucified, one of the payments of the executioners was always to get the possessions or the clothing of the criminal. And so here they have the soldiers. They're dividing Jesus' garments. And they finally take away his last undergarment. So that he is crucified naked. Completely naked. Why? Like, why do I bring that up? Well, what we've mentioned in the past, if you've been with us, is what we've seen is a common stream. That nakedness, ever since Genesis 3, ever since sin ruined our relationship with God, in almost every culture, even today in the Bible, and in the Bible, nakedness is always, always a symbol of defenseless vulnerability and of shame. Right? Consider the Garden of Eden, back at the very beginning of our story. Adam and Eve, before they sinned, they were naked and they were unashamed. They were at complete ease with themselves. Nothing to hide, nothing to shame. But after sin, when God comes back to the garden, they run and they hide. And they make make fig, fig leaves for themselves. Why? Because they're ashamed. They know that if someone looks at them and sees them for who they are, they will be rejected by God and people. Look, what John is doing is something amazing. The detail that he adds here is important. Because John is making you see that Jesus is crucified as a symbol of shame. He's naked. And he's the only one who who never would have anything to be ashamed of. He's the only one in history who's ever lived where all of his thoughts, all of his desires, all of his actions could be publicized on Twitter, and there would be nothing to be ashamed of. Perfect love for his father, and perfect love for people. Yet, he is the one crucified as the symbol of shame. Why? Why? He must be bearing someone else's shame. Mine and yours. And he's finishing it. As one theologian said, Jesus is stripped of his garments so that he may clothe us with his righteousness. Jesus on the cross is a call to us all. Stop trying to fix yourself. Stop hiding from God and from one another. Let his death and his beauty let his love cover you. And you say like, awesome, like I, like I hear you. But you have no idea what I've done. And you also have no idea what's been done to me. Okay. But Jesus knows. And Hebrews 2.11 says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers. Um, during March Madness, I think it was like, seven years ago, maybe, uh, Michigan State uh, went out early again. uh, And after they lost the game, the camera panned across the crowd. And what they saw was that there was this dad who was standing up, and he was waving this sign over his head that read, Number 10 is my son. But Number 10, who was on Michigan State's team, was actually the player that lost the game for them. Number 10 was the son that actually failed. But the father didn't care. You see, everyone in here, all of us, everyone on this campus, actually, universally, we know what it feels like to blow it. All of us do. And you're lying if you don't. Like to really mess up and experience the shame of failure. And what Jesus is saying is look at the cross. Jesus literally taking our shame so that He can hold the sign above you and say, I'm not ashamed to call you mine. If He bears your shame, then yes, you. You who say there are things that I've done in the privacy of my room that no one knows about. You who say that there are things that I've done that I still think that I need to atone for in some way. You who have been... who, have a, who has a truckload of shame because your physical nakedness has literally been exposed to a person or persons while in high school or college? And it so haunts you that that shame so plagues you. And Jesus is saying, Look at me. Look at the cross. Trust me. I took it all. I took the shame for you. I'm not ashamed to call you brother or sister. I'm proud to call you mine. And finally, what rounds all of this off is what Jesus said in our second point in verses 25 through 30. Because I want you to consider Jesus' final words in verse 30. You know, most people, when they're dying, they're usually saying what is most dear to them. And we get to see the last words of Jesus here. What is most dear to Him. Because in verse thirty, this—the last thing Jesus cries before he bows his head and gives up his life—is "It is finished." It literally means "It is paid." It is accomplished. It's the word by right, many commentators. Com- 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 it's actually—it's uh, actually a Greek word that's "to It literally means "It is paid." It is accomplished. It was the word that they would write actually on a first-century bill that you paid for. To tell aside, you owe nothing else. The debt is paid for. There is Jesus, taking his last drink of water so he can moisten his parched throat enough to yell one last time I've done it. I've accomplished it. Think about it. A bloodied, naked man hanging on a cross 2,000 years ago, rejected and shamed, but hanging between two thieves, yelling, not a moan of defeat but a cry of accomplishment and victory. What is finished? It's the work that Jesus came to do. It was the will of His Father that He always delighted in. According to 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. That's the finished work. So what does this mean for us? It means that if you are in Christ, you are fully and finally forgiven forever. Your salvation is finished. One commentator pointed this out. Do you know what Buddha's last words were? Strive without ceasing. And what are Jesus' last words? It is finished. And it begs the question tonight. Let me ask you, which one of those phrases really describes you tonight? Are you rested in the finished work of Jesus? Or are you still striving? Still atoning? Still believing that there's still a sliver of sin? There really is no way that God could really forgive all of my sin. So you're still trying to work or atone in some way in order to please Him. And Some of you are weary tonight. I've met with you. I've sat down with you. I, I've heard you. Because some of you are looking at Jesus and saying, it's not finished. Because that weariness you have, that inner dialogue with yourself, if I don't get it together soon, because there's always that nagging, that nagging suspicion That my relationship with God is like everything else I do. There's always more to do. I always got to keep my friends happy with me. I always have more school to do. There's always another week on the horizon. There's always an ever-growing to-do list. And the way we end up thinking about our salvation to keep it on me is that I have to contribute something in some way. Right? Imagine if if you... Went to Paris. Some of you may have been to Paris. If you've been to Paris or Rio de Janeiro, I, I want to talk with you. That's pretty amazing. Um, like some of you, imagine you go to Paris and you go to see Leonardo da Vinci's work of art, the Mona Lisa. And imagine that you decided, you know, like that. It looks nice. It's kind of weird looking. Like I actually think it could, br- like, use like a special touch. And so you cross the line. And you take out paint. And you start adding your own paint to it. Like, what would happen well, like after being tackled and arrested? Like, there would be an outrage. Because the slightest alteration, the slightest addition, actually subtracted from it. It was perfect, and you ruined it. Look, Jesus offers a full and a finished salvation. Because it is just that. The only way you really get it. Is that you stop working for it, and to receive it in full, to realize that any contribution that I try to make just ruins it. Uh, I'll end with this: Matt Howe, who's now a pastor in, in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, he tells a story about a guy named Brian Chapel, okay, who used to be a seminary or president of a seminary. And he tells a story about when uh, his wife actually took his two young boy, t- took their two young boys uh, to the St. Louis Zoo. And so you have this mom and these two little kids and they're going to the zoo and she's pushing the stroller. Right, you're aware of zoos, like they have different exhibits. And the two little kids wanted to go to the big cat country. So they're headed to the big pack, cat country. The mom's pushing the stroller and a blanket is dangling on the side of the stroller and it falls and gets caught in the wheel. And so the mom gets distracted and she leans down and she pulls the blanket out of the wheel and she looks up and her kids are gone. And so she turns the corner of the exhibit and she doesn't see them. And then to her, to her horror, she looks inside the lion's exhibit and actually sees both of her two boys playing on a rock with a, with a male lion 20 feet away. True story. Okay, And she is in shock. She doesn't know what to do. She's horrified. She doesn't want to scream. She doesn't want to scare the lion. So her first instinct is she falls to her knees. And she says, boys, boys, mommy loves you. Come give mommy a hug. And the boys, like completely unaware, like see their mom. They like jump off the rock and they run. They wiggle their way for the exhibit. And they fall into their mother's arms. And there is much weeping and crying and relief. You see, but these two little boys ran into the arms that saved them from a danger that they could have never comprehended, comprehended at how grave it really was. When Jesus declares, it is finished, He is not shouting at you. He is not threatening you. He is putting the God the Father's heart on display. He is giving a loving warning and a promise Inviting you with outstretched arms on the cross, come to me. I love you. Share in my love. Share in my grace. I'm here for you. So that we would actually fall into the loving arms of his grace. Life is in the finished work of Jesus. This is it. This is what we've been talking about all semester. And it all comes together here. There's, there's a way to be absolutely reconciled with God. To be done with all of my shame. With all of my condemnation. And it is in Christ. It is the love of Jesus. Who would hang Himself on a cross. It would keep Him there. And what would keep Him there is not nails. But His love for you. Life is in Christ which shows you a Father who would crucify His Son so He could have you with Him. Life is in Christ which gives you a Holy Spirit that comes to you and dwells in you so that you will never forget the power and the thrill of free grace always. And I'll end with an invitation as I always do. An invitation straight from the text. It is finished. Will you receive it? Let's pray. Father, tonight we stand here that if we are in You, if we have received the grace that You have poured out on us through the blood of Your Son Jesus on the cross, we can cry together with the Apostle Paul that death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But we cry tonight, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in your holy name
0: we pray. Amen. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode of the Texas A&M RUF podcast. If you're interested in joining us for a large group, we would love to see you at All Faiths Chapel on the north side of campus across from Sabisa, at 8 p.m. on Wednesdays. Go ahead and follow at AggieRUF on Instagram for updates about any other events we're putting on. We hope to see you around. Thanks and giggum.